Welcome to Life of the School, episode 78. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I'm doing a first, and that is a revisit, and I'm revisiting with David Kanufke, who is back on episode seven. David currently teaches kids at Singapore American School. Prior to this, he spent 14 years as a teacher and then the curriculum associate for science and technology for Deer Park UFSD in New York. His major professional interests center around the broad pursuit of progressive science education pedagogies with a major focus on NGSS-centered approaches. From a technological standpoint, David is an outspoken advocate for intelligent, free, and open use of information technologies, both educational and non-educational. You can read his thoughts on education at knufke.com, and you can access his older curriculum material at mrknufke.net. You can also follow him on Twitter at David Knufke. Welcome back, David. Wow. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me back, Aaron. I can't believe I'm the first, I'm the first revisit. So if any of yeah, the, yeah. Uh, if any of the other 70, uh, <laughs> 76 folks in the queue want to know what you need to do in order to get uh, back onto life at the school. I guess you need to quit your job and and move halfway around the world, and that'll 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 get you back on there. No, thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm really glad to be to be back on the show. Yeah, I think we had had the conversation. You had spoken um, at the Massachusetts Association of Biology Teachers yeah. conference um, in your last semester in New York, and I said. After you go to New York, I mean, after you leave New York and after you go to Singapore, when you come back, uh, we'll definitely have to, we'll have to chat. And you were like, yeah. sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then uh, we went a little back and forth over the summer. Um, I will tell you the only person who's actually, I've had a conversation about having back as a revisit is totally worth it. And that's uh, our common friend, Bob Kuhn. Ah, of uh, course. I, I think, spent a lot uh, of time with Bob this summer. It's always, always a good time. Yeah, I've messaged back and forth with him. Uh, I, I nailing him down for one podcast was so hard. Um, <laughs> he's yeah. he's such an enigma of a like he does not want to publicize anything he does. Yeah, as wonderful. Bob, as Bob it will is. always go to great lengths to uh, to not be spotlit for any particular function. Um, yeah, you no, know, which is why he's so fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he does such amazing stuff, and uh, he sure does. You know, he gave. He gave me some feedback on a on a curriculum piece that I, I had a feeling that he would have some insight on um, over the summer, and I was like so thrilled when he gave me feedback because it was like I can't tell you how many times uh, because what he's been working on with his his wabakia and his yeah. pill bugs and yeah. stuff like that. Um, I've been doing a very similar project with ladybugs, oh, cool. um, which <laughs> which more will come out uh, in the next month or two um, awesome. as we come out. But literally, like. You know, he'd post something on Twitter, and it'd be him and a whole bunch of like uh, these, these pill bug containers. And I literally had the exact same thing in my basement, but they yeah. were just ladybugs, and it was like weird parallel uh, lives awesome. that we were leading. So yeah, yeah, he's got a so. he's got a room in his house. Not to give Bob away too much, but he's got a room in his house there. He can just do anything he wants. And uh, so I think on the on the on his Instagram feed today, he had gone out and found a bunch of ant lion hills and uh -huh. had dug up that. like. 
like 40 antlions. <laughs> and so his, his feed was just an image of like 40 individual antlion setups just all set. And I'm just like super, super jealous because I don't have the space. And uh, I mean, Lord knows what, what I would get out if I started digging around uh, over here in Singapore. But yeah, it's, 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 he's an incredible guy. Yeah, I uh, I might have a couple of gel boxes over on the counter in my basement right now. <laughs> nice. I brought home. I brought home for experiments and uh, stuff in the freezer. So, all right. Well, this is not the Bob Coon podcast. Um, no. <laughs> as, as as though we've gotten distracted. We could, for we could a make it minutes. one if we wanted. That would be hysterical, and he would hate that. Um, <laughs> yeah, he would not like it. No, he would not like that. But uh, the one of the main reasons we decided we were going to get you back on is that um, you you did you 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 flipped your life upside down and you moved across the, to the other side of the world. Um, you did tease something on Twitter, which I might have to come back to in, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but you left a district, you know, yeah. in New York, uh, you know, one would argue a, a very comfortable existence, a, totally. a well-paid, um, experience that you had worked towards for many years. Um, and you just sort of, <laughs> blew that all up and you went to Singapore to become yeah. a, a teacher again. And so yeah. like, how did you become a science teacher in Singapore? Yeah. I mean, is, is that, a, is that not a normal thing, Aaron? Is that not a thing that people just decide to do is just to throw it all away and, and move across the world? Uh, you know, no, um, I, um, I think when we recorded last time, I had just moved out of the classroom and was mm -hmm. like just about to start my job as the curriculum director in the district that I taught in for 12 years. And, uh, I've always said that the district that I taught in was a fantastic place. Um, you know, I always like to describe it kind of as like remarkably unremarkable in that <laughs> it, it had all the resources I needed to basically do anything I wanted. Um, but it didn't have, uh, any of the real issues that you see in uh, a lot of American public school systems. So, uh, it was a pretty sweet, sweet place to teach. Um, and I, I thought it would be a sweet place to be the curriculum associate for science and technology, which is like their director level position, uh, mm -hmm. being in charge of middle school and high school science. Um, and that was a fine job, but, uh, you know, I, I haven't listened to that episode in a while that we recorded, but I think, uh, if I could hear that guy, that guy had some different opinions on sort of what administration would look like than what administration actually was. Um, you mm -hmm. know, my department was wonderful people. I taught with them for 12 years. Uh, you know, I was very much at the sort of, uh, peak of working with those people and just having a great time doing stuff. The administration in Deer Park was wonderful. The, the students were wonderful. The, the parents were wonderful. Uh, everybody was wonderful. The job itself was just boring. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's just the way to put it, right? Like yeah. I, there's no teaching involved, right? Which is sort of like a death sentence in and of itself. And yeah. then um, because of New York state being a public school in, in the United States, there's all sorts of things that need to happen in order to make sure that you're sort of in compliance with the various mandates that are really coming down, not at the district level, but uh, above the district level. And yeah. so um, that's what you do, right? You are making sure that the staff is being observed according to the Danielson protocol, which is one of, <laughs> at that point, I think four different 
acceptable protocols in New York State, right? And you are the person who's making sure that the regents exam is deployed in the highly specific way that it needs to be deployed in order to be in uh, No Child Left Behind and Every Student Succeeds Act compliance for New York State, because that's how New York State meets that compliance, right? Uh, you are doing all of that. It is not, you are not teaching. Um, that's important work. I don't mean to, I don't mean to besmirch anybody who's doing that job. It's much harder to be a teacher if you don't have somebody effective doing that job. And I, I think I did as good a job at that as I could, but I just got really, really bored. Uh, we had, I think, three different people in that position in the three years immediately preceding my own tenure in that job. So we had a lot of like loose ends and churn. Um, and it took me, you know, about six months in there to tie up those loose ends and do things like get the book room cleaned out and, you know, just all of that sort of stuff. So that kept me occupied for a while. Um, and then I just spent a lot of time twiddling my thumbs uh, in between just coming up with any excuse to get back into a classroom and see a colleague teach um, just to kind of, you know, keep kind of one finger in there. So I, um, I, I, I wrote a, uh, I kept like a blog of what I was doing at the time, which I, which I've since kind of mothballed, which was just sort of like <laughs> my, my administrative life. And, uh, if I, if I look back at it, it's just a lot of, uh, systems level stuff in order to make, in order to decrease the amount of time necessary to do the work and also just any excuse to get back into watching people teach. So, um, after the first year. Uh, we have a mutual friend that many people know, uh, Mr. Paul Anderson, who who goes <laughs> yeah. goes around the world, and he's a consultant. And he had known because uh, he and I obviously have a bit of a history that um, mm -hmm. international schools were things that I was interested in. I think we made it a topic of one episode on horizontal transfer way back when, like international schools. And so he knew that I was interested in it. He's been obviously in pretty much, I think, like 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 every international school, you know, um, yeah. speaks English <laughs> at least, I think. Um, so the, the thing that was always keeping, uh, us, and I speak for myself and my wife, who was obviously very much on board with this move from ever making the move was not, um, so much comfort in, in New York, though we certainly had that, but it was always, there's a, a reputation for international schools that they can both be really, really good. And there are some that are not really, really good. And it was very difficult for us to understand which schools would, would, match which descriptor. And we didn't want to, you know, uh, I don't want to say throw everything away because that's certainly not what we did, but we didn't want to toss everything to the wind and move yeah. to another country if we didn't have sort of a, a an understanding that the school was going to be a worthwhile place to to spend years because you know you're going to be you're going to be on a on a year long two year long contract you uh, initially and maybe considerably longer past that so with Paul going around the world I had a, <laughs> a, a secret sort of resource right so when yeah. Paul came to SAS he'd done uh, work for a couple of years with SAS the outgoing uh, AP biology teacher and department chair uh, a gentleman named uh, Dr Kevin Pierce who some folks may know. Uh, he's, uh, he was, had given his notice that he was going to leave at the end of that year. And, uh, he said to Paul, do you know anybody who might be interested? Um, and without talking too much inside baseball here, Kevin was also a longtime listener of, of horizontal transfer. So Paul said, yeah, I think, I think Dave might be interested. And so he sent, um, he, he just got in contact and said, are you interested in, in possibly thinking about this? And so I, I, I read the, the message that came in. 
And I uh, went immediately to my wife, who at that point was eight months pregnant with our second child. I was going to say, I was thinking about the timing because I remember you (laughs) announcing the child at Thanksgiving break. My wife's a a really amazing, amazing lady who also just didn't love the culture of living in Long Island. She lived upstate for most of her life, you know, and she'd done 10 years on Long Island. And so I I said, are we interested in making this move? And she said, well, we can certainly have a conversation about it, right? Like, and so, you know, by all means, pursue it and let's kind of see what happens. So it was sort of uh, almost pie in the sky, but we're just going to kind of see where this where this goes. And so then there was yeah. a, a hiring process that I participated in, and um, uh, the school was very uh, gracious in offering me the job. And uh, so I took the job 48 hours after my uh, daughter was born. So uh, <laughs> we got home from the hospital, and I had my sort of final interview where I was offered the position. And um, I didn't accept at that moment. I, I, I think we, we asked for the, the weekend to kind of sleep on it and get some questions answered that we had. And uh, that was that. So I, I, you know, I think I returned to work. And <laughs> I think I said, you know, everybody was glad to see me and said, hey, congratulations, you got the baby. They threw me a wonderful baby shower because uh, they're fantastic people. And then I, I, I sat on it for a while. Um, I didn't let too many people know. And then I think about uh, two months later, I let everybody know that I would be uh, leaving at the end of the year and and where I was going. And so that's kind of how it worked out that I became a, a science teacher in in Singapore. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you that I, it was it was uh, probably the the best move outside of initially working in, in Deer Park, which was a great place to spend that first part of my career. But it's the best move that we could have made. It's just been uh, it's been fantastic. I, I don't want to pretend like there haven't been you know, learning opportunities along the way and little bumps, but it really has just been a, a wonderful opportunity for for myself professionally, but also and probably most importantly for for my family as as well. So, uh, long story, but that's how uh, I wound up being a science teacher in Singapore. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny because um, you had I think confided in me via a message. And I think you were like, don't tell anybody, but you know, I think I'm going to be, you know, switching schools or something a little bit on the cryptic side, but yeah. that you were going to leave your position. And I was like, who the hell am I going to tell? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like I am the safest person to divulge that kind of thing from, <laughs> but it was like a couple of weeks before it was right around, uh, I think it was right around the Christmas break time yeah. uh, where you hadn't quite let things out of the bag, but we had, we had had a few exchanges over those couple of months. Um, yeah, my thought always, and I, when I, list, I did li- recently listen back to the, that episode seven, um, knowing that we were going to get back here and, you know, not wanting to just totally rehash sure. the same conversation. And I, we had had that a little off air and I was like, oh God, we're in such different places right now. <laughs> Um, that like, it's, you know, I can't imagine having the same conversation, but I was the one who was like, Oh, leaving the classroom, not being in the kids. And you were like, yeah, that's going to be the tough part. Yep. Uh, but the other thing that we, that didn't come out was everything you described was you moved into educational management, not really educational leadership. Totally. And I think the discussion that you had was like excited about sort of the leadership opportunities, like helping to forge as the new NGSS standards were coming in and that sort of thing. But most of the job, yeah. like 90% of the job was management and not the opportunity to lead and set direction because of all of those other things. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can only I can only speak for New York State, um, but it, just the amount of management that seems like a, that's like a ratchet that only turns one direction. Right. So mm-hmm. as the system adds more parts to it. Just the amount of management goes goes way, way up. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a huge part of being an administrator, at least in in the district that I was in. But I'm guessing uh, in 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 most districts these days in New York, there's there's a lot of management, and so you need to kind of figure out 
um, ways to automate as much as possible to to make as much mm-hmm. space as possible in order to get back to the the leadership side of things. Certainly, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those things that I think everyone I talk to, particularly in the public sphere, you know, public yeah. education sphere, I think it does it washes a little bit different if you're in a private school. Yes, um, it, I, I can tell they, you now. I mean, having having been in a private school for a year and and sort of SAS being what it is. Um, that it's, it's, uh, it's incredibly different, right? The, 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 it's, it's wildly different for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I think you can focus a little bit more on leadership because, you know, things like state tests, those don't exist, right? You know, like, uh, they're going to trust you to be a professional by the time that they've gotten you here. They're like, okay, you know, we've, you represent an investment, a substantial investment for us. We have faith that you are among the 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 most professional people that we've seen because we're offering you this job and you know we we get a lot of people who apply for these jobs and so we're going to trust that you're a professional we're not going to you know micromanage you uh you know I think my principal I think the principal came in to observe me at the end of the year last year after uh he had uh, sort of offered me the role of department chair so i'm going to be like the department chair for the next three years it's not a humble brag trust me i was uh the only person (laughs) in the department who expressed a remote interest in the position so um you know they were like yeah okay it's it's you but you know only after they offered me that job did the principal come in to see me because he just assumed that i was a professional and that that kind of stuff has just really disappeared in new york at least and it, it really i think is sad yeah. Yeah. So that's the, I, that was the thing that you cryptically had alluded to, I think on Twitter where you were stepping into a new role. So that's, that is the new role that you're going to be um, adding into your work next yeah, year. Yeah. I've got a, a couple of, uh, so the department chair thing, right? So if we go back to my life as the administrator before I, before I came here, you know, um, the, the, the sort of uh, teacher level management that you need to do in order to make your colleagues life as easy as possible, right? That's stuff that I yeah. that I love doing, right? I love, you know, helping my colleagues find uh, ways to get the resources they want, to help them get those things, to to point them in places to get resources and ideas. You know, all of that stuff is is fantastic. And so uh, the department chair job is very much that, right? And helping just kind of serve as a point of contact between the administration and us as the teachers. Um, so that was a job that became available that nobody else wanted. And so I was like, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> and then um, the other thing I'm doing next year is uh, sort of an NGSS alignment role that we that they built this year to kind of help um, do some sort of final steps with NGSS alignment, particularly in, in chemistry. And so those two things kind of got smushed together and was given, uh, was given to me uh, for for this coming year, but again, it speaks to kind of the flexibility of a of a private system versus a public system. In that they could just kind of snap their fingers at the end of the year and be like, "Oh, we really we want uh, to develop internal capacity for NGSS without going to external consultants so much." Um, and mm-hmm. so we're going to just create this role, you know, and and and, and here it is. So uh, those are the things that I'll be doing next year, in addition to teaching point uh, six of the normal full time schedule. Nice. Yeah. So you are getting you're getting that that thing that you sort of wanted to do a little bit uh, yeah. without having to leave the classroom. Yeah, I, uh, I I with I had um at the end of my first year as a curriculum associate, I had been offered a job with another organization, and um, we slept on it. And I woke up and I still wasn't really comfortable with it. Um, mm-hmm. but I had thought I was going to take that job, and 
I woke up in the morning, talked it over with uh, with my life partner, and we were like, yeah, we really just can't get square on this. But what I had already done almost stupidly, except that I had a really good relationship with my superintendent at the time, is I had booked the appointment in which I was going to go in and tell her that I was leaving. And <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I'd already booked that. And so when we woke up and I didn't take that job, I still went to that appointment. And I sat down with her and I talked to her about the the difficulties I had in the curriculum associate role. And I, I said, you know, you got to do one of two things here with this job. You either need to kind of broaden the leadership responsibilities, make it K-12 and kind of provide the sort of managerial support necessary. So a lot of that is offloaded by maybe bringing in chairs at the different schools. Or, you know, I can do the job I'm doing right now and just give me like a class to teach, you know, like you, yeah. you, you like convert my job right now into a chair. I'll run everything you need me to run at the high school and the middle school. And I just want to teach one class a day. And she just didn't have the ability to do that. She, you know, the, the mm -hmm. contract being what it is and so forth. It's just yeah. like, yeah, it's not, you know, and she, and she said, you know, I guess this means that you're going to start looking to go. And I said, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> that is kind of what it means. And, you know, three yeah. months later, I told her, I told her where we were going. Yeah. So you, you, you have this opportunity to like step out of the classroom for a couple of years and yeah, you get to go in and observe people. But, you know, as we've talked about many times, I mean, the, the cornerstone of what we do every day in the classroom is really the, the marrying of the, the love of the science and, you know, the wonder that we, we teach and the relationships we have with kids. Yeah. Um, and so that was the thing that you were really not getting to get nursed with sort of in the career path of being in that curriculum supervisory totally. role. So I imagine that you had a few years out and then you return in the classroom. Did your curriculum end up having any, any shifts or anything from reflecting during that hiatus away from being in the classroom every day? Did it change in any way? Yeah. I mean, so um, it, it absolutely changed in certain ways. A lot of those uh, this first year at SAS were just structural because the, the, the culture of SAS yeah. was just very different. And so uh, SAS is a very strong PLC culture. Um, mm -hmm. So your PLC teams, which are um, discipline-specific teams, they meet every week um, during the mornings on Wednesdays and then Fridays. So if you're in two PLC teams, one will meet every morning on Wednesday and one will meet every morning on Friday. And the <laughs> PLC model that they use, which is based on the, uh, based on the work of DeFore, um, has certain structures to it and there are certain... Uh, ways in which there's an expectation that the PLC will work. And so one of the ways that the expectation is that the PLC will work is that you're going to give common summative assessments for each unit of instruction, and you're going to give at least one common formative assessment. Um, and you're always going to be engaged in that work of looking at sort of how the kids are doing, how we know how well they're doing, what we're doing to sort of uh, to intervene for kids who need interventions, what we're doing for kids who've got it and they're moving on. And so that was a structure that I had never participated in before. And so that definitely changed. It changed things like unit structure and chemistry. Um, it changed things like the activities we were doing and how we were going to do this work. And that's obviously work that's going to continue on this year, particularly in my, my new role, kind of doing that NGSS alignment in chemistry. We're going to be uh, doing a lot of work to bring in things uh, that, you know, just three-dimensional instruction, the way that it's kind of talked about and what that's going to look like mm -hmm. specific to SAS and specific to uh, SAS chemistry as well. But last year, it was very much like their sequence was different. Um, the ways in which they assess things was different and so on. And I was, uh, you know, kind of the, 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 the new guy in a PLC of three <laughs> people with two wonderful other educators. So I very much, uh, it was very much a, a, an exercise in just 
trying to be as helpful and um, collegial as possible and going along with how things were going at that point, because things work really well at SAS. You know, the kids are the kids are uh, great and they can they can handle pretty much anything. But it was like if it, if it ain't broke, so to speak. Uh, why fix it? And so that kind of model was very different than what I had when I was teaching in Deer Park, where I was uh, sort of a unit of one. And, um, you know, in, in Deer Park, and many people out there probably have similar experiences, um, your colleagues are wonderful. And if you're doing cool things, your colleagues will uh, come and they'll take what they want and they'll leave the things that they're not interested in. And you can do the same with them as well but you're kind of left to your own devices. And so if you want to teach in one particular style and nobody else wants to teach in that particular style, you want to go through a particular sequence and nobody else wants to go through that particular sequence in that order, you're very much kind of given the opportunity to, to do that. Whereas at SAS, um, it's not like it's forced upon you, but you need to work with your colleagues in order to come to consensus about what that's going to look like and how that's going to be implemented. So that, that definitely had big effects on my chemistry instruction last year. Uh, AP Biology was a PLC of two people, um, <laughs> and my colleague there is uh, one of the most laid back and just incredibly talented people that I've that I've ever worked with. And so when I showed up, I had certain things that were kind of like I I had certain like givens that I needed to be able to bring over and put into place. Um, things like uh, folks out there uh, may know, like I give um, a cumulative summative exam at the end of each month. I don't give a unit exam. Um, I just stop at the end of each month and we give an exam that's half material from that month and half from all of the preceding months. And so I really wanted mm -hmm. to do that. I really wanted to change the way like our grading policy. You know, I really wanted uh, sort of uh, we, we have a uh, like a summative formative split that I like to use, which is sort of like a 50 50 split down the middle. And so I really wanted to do that. And the system that uh, was in place before that was sort of a more traditional like labs are x percent and quizzes are x percent and and so on and so forth so i really wanted to do that and i wanted to use my sequence because my sequence makes a lot of sense to me and so um i came in and i said to my colleague you know steve are you cool with me with us doing all these things and steve was amazing about it and just said yeah no absolutely like let's let's do it you know however however you want to do it let's do it and so he very much just kind of let me uh take the ball and run with it uh last year and so i didn't have to change as much in AP bio last year, only because it, uh, I, I just had the freedom to basically do anything I wanted. Steve was going to kind of go along for the ride. Um, what I had to change in, in AP bio last year, for instance, was we moved, uh, we lost half of the time that I used to have. So uh, oh, in Deer yeah. Park, I had uh, the, the best possible situation, you know, well to the right of the distribution. We had two periods every day. And uh, that's a rare thing, and it is unique, and it is wonderful. And in SAS, you get uh, uh, an 80-minute block, so essentially two periods every other day. So now that's half as much time, a little bit more than half as much because we start a little bit earlier. We start at you know, sort of the middle of August. But okay, so now I have a curriculum that has 50% extra stuff. And so what am I going to do in order to still teach a cohesive curriculum without, uh, you know, while, while still figuring out a way to, uh, to, to slim down for want of a better term, you know, and get rid of 50% of, of the stuff. And so uh, those kinds of considerations had to be made, certainly, uh, last year as we kind of went through it. And um, that's the main change from, uh, for last year, because it was really just a, a focus of 
getting in, kind of getting accustomed to the system, figuring out how the system worked and learning about the culture of the district before you, before you really start to tinker. I think you need to, you need to do those kinds of things. Yeah. So it's kind of like being a new teacher, but just from a cultural standpoint, like the, the, the trust component that you have to build relationships with people and, um, and the you know figuring out the collaboration. So I guess the the question would be that you come into a place where you have an existing AP teacher, and it makes it sound like he was just like, "Cool, we'll do whatever." Yeah. Uh, but how was it like collaborating with somebody in a building on AP um, once you got there? It was that different than Deer Park. That was very similar. I had taught I had taught AP Bio in Deer Park with a colleague. Uh, you know, every year whenever we had two sections, she'd have one section and I'd have one section, and uh, we would work kind of similarly, you know, um, but so what's nice at SAS is with the PLC structure, I'm meeting with that colleague every Friday. And mm-hmm. so we're always talking about kind of where we're at, where we're going, how the kids are doing, what's working, what isn't working. Um, are we having similar sorts of experiences in both of our classes? Um, all of those things are occurring each week. And so it was wonderful because, uh, you know, my, my colleague was just a, a, is just a fantastic guy to work with. And so uh, I don't mean it just from the standpoint of, you know, Hey, he's letting me do whatever I want. Right. Like that's convenient, but I, you definitely want to make sure that any colleague in that feels valued and has as much input into the process as I do. And so, you know, sort of my approach there is always just to kind of be like, I don't have a lot of shame. And so I'm very, I'm always very upfront to being like, I'm happy to basically like outside of these things that I kind of really need, which are sort of large structural things like the the course sequence, right? And um, sort of my testing policy and our grading policy. Outside of those things, the the day-to-day stuff, I'm open to pretty much, I'm open for anything, right? So like, okay, yeah. you know, today is when we're going to teach um, population genetics, you know, how, here's how I've done it in the past. How have you done it? What has worked? What hasn't worked? The things I haven't liked in the ways I've done it in the past are X, Y, and Z. Uh, have you have you figured out a way to solve these problems? Oh, you solved these problems this way. All right, cool. Let's you know, let's bring these things in. Let's let's make a sort of a melange of what we're both doing so that we both feel like we have uh, we have ownership over it. Yeah, it, it's funny when you talk about the the relationship and that you have the, like the most chill guy you work with because you know Brian Dempsey who I work yeah. with, um, and and I was like I don't know about that I might have the most chill uh, AP partner because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, Brian is pretty laid back and I'm kind of kind of crazy and bold but um, I went and did a, a pretty cool PD thing this summer um, I went down to UConn and I learned about the the Tiny Earth Initiative which yeah. is looking for antibiotics in soil samples. Awesome. Um, and they were like, so how do you think you're going to implement this? And I was like, I am going to go back to Acton and I am going to talk to Brian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because like, because this is not the kind of thing where I thought I could just say, this is, oh, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to roll it out. And I was yeah. like, I can see all the options and possibilities, but I need to go back and sit down and talk to Brian because he's not comfortable with this. And it's, I mean, it was an intensive microbiology yeah. course, which I loved. Um, I am, I am definitely on the micromolecular side of things, but I can't throw him into a curriculum where he didn't get the PD. Um, And of course I had the conversation with earlier this week and he's like, yeah, that sounds awesome. When are we going to do it? (laughs) (laughs) So he's got total faith that I'll set him up and, you know, I'll walk him through it and we'll do that. But um, that is because that is a reflection of years and years of working together and trust, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it's great that you could come into this place where like they basically expect you are going to build trusting relationships with your colleagues who you teach the same subject with. Yeah. Um, I think that's, sort of that's their starter. That's absolutely yeah. correct, right? It's like we don't expect 
you know, they, they kind of go out of their way the first year. If you want, you know, they're like, Hey, if, if you got a lot of stuff going on, you've moved your life halfway across the globe, you know, the PLCs are so well developed that, you know, if you were so inclined, you could focus on all of the other stuff and you could check in with your PLC members, you know, every week and you could figure out what they're doing and all of the materials are going to be there for you to use if you want. And you can, if, you know, you can take it and you can, you, you don't need to worry about that this first year. you really need to worry about building relationships. Uh, because the relationships are where that's all going to spring from. And, uh, you know, SAS extends that, I think, all all across the board, right? Uh, administration, uh, the relationships between administration and teachers, the relationships between teachers and teachers, and of course, you know, the most important relationships, which are those with students. And so it's just very, very focused on building relationships and building trust. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, I've, this has come up a few times where I've talked to different people. I think that, it can't be overexpressed that the cultural interactions between adults in a building yeah. ultimately sets more of a tone between the relationship between the adults and the students I think than anything true. else you can do. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, right. You know, it, it, we, we, the kids are going to pick it all up from sort of seeing how the adults around them are acting. And I, I think you're absolutely yeah. right with that. Yeah. So uh, we've been just like a shining like advertisement for going overseas <laughs> and doing that. Uh, I don't know if we've missed any of the advantages to going over there, but also, you know, are there any disadvantages yeah. to moving to the other side of the globe? You know, and, I, I, you know returning yeah, uh, this is a, a thing that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about over the last year and in the run up to us moving sort of after it became official that we were moving, like why we were moving and, um, then after we moved, was it kind of what we thought it would be? Um, advantage wise, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not going to soapbox it too much. Uh, I'm sure I can, I'll give you a link. You know, you already pointed people to my blog very kindly. Uh, people can go there if they really want to read sort of my, 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 my thoughts about what the major advantages are for our family, um, you know, for the, the, all of those things. Um, there, there certainly were, was a lot of advantages, but uh, the disadvantages are probably a little bit more interesting. Um, and again, you know, mileage may mileage may vary here, right? Because international schools mm -hmm. are just so different depending upon where you are. And so, you know, my experience here, both in Singapore and uh, at SAS specifically, could be very, very different than other international folks out there. So, uh, just take that with a with a grain of a grain of salt as you as you. As you listen to it, but um, the main disadvantages for living in Singapore are the uh, distance from your family. If you have family that you're close with who live in the United States, because, you know, if you get out of globe, you have moved essentially as far away from them as you possibly can on the planet. Right. Like, uh, you know, I'm talking to you right now. It is yeah. 12 hours. Uh, yep. It's 12 hours. It's it's what it's it's got to be Saturday evening for you right and it's sunday morning yep, and for sunday me, morning right? for you yeah so you, know, you can't get further away than 12 hours time shift on this globe um so that's that's an issue right i mean you know it can be an issue it's it's easier now than it ever has been in the past in terms of things like uh skype and facetime and whatnot of course helped out by singapore's amazing you know it infrastructure so you know our, our gigabit internet connection is like 40 bucks a month or something right so like we we have 
we have ways to stay in contact. Certainly you're, when your family comes, they'll tend to spend a longer time. You know, my parents came for a month. My wife's mom came for a month last year. My parents are thinking about coming for six weeks this year. Uh, we, the way that SAS does things, they give you money specifically so that you can go home in the summer. So we went home, we got home June 8th and we just got back two days ago. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's all paid for. And so there is that, and, uh, people will tell you that they find that the time that you spend with your family when you're back or when they're here is more, um, for want of a better term, quality time than it might be when they're 30 minutes away from you. And you kind of take for granted that they're 30 minutes away from you in physical space. Um, I, yeah. I did find that that was the case. Uh, my my parents will tell you that they, they're very incredibly supportive of this move, but they'll also tell you that it's very difficult for them, uh, particularly with grandchildren. Um, so yeah. that's, that's, that's definitely an issue that you should think about if that's going to be a problem for you. Uh, you're going to need to figure out how that's going to weigh against the various pros that you might be able to see in, in making a move like this. Uh, Singapore is one degree north of the equator. So, uh, and it is, it, if there was not a world-class city on this island, it would be a, a tropical rainforest. So uh, the, the climate is that, right? Uh, for uh, my, my friends on the east coast of the United States, if you pick the, sort of the most, the, the hottest, most humid week of the summer, that's what Singapore is every day, right? Their there, seasons don't exist. It's essentially 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark every day. Um, the temperature is always going to be within a very narrow range. Uh, those things are what they are. Uh, I would much rather it be uh, tropical like that than Arctic like that, certainly. But the climate can be um, difficult for some folks, though we, we don't find it to be that difficult. We don't mind uh, our vacations down to Florida either. So it's about the same. <laughs> um, and then there's, there's various cultural things. Uh, you know, Singapore's great in that the uh, official language is English. Uh, everybody can speak English. Um, it's, it's very friendly for English speaking expats in that sense. Uh, it's easy to get anything you want here uh, in terms of uh, food, in terms of sustenance, etc. with, you know, specific ethnic favorites that may not be there. Like I can't get good New York pizza here, right? But you know, you can get, you can eat very well here without a problem. Um, all the systems work very well here. It's, uh, you know, it's what, it's got the third highest per capita GDP in the world. So it's, uh, it's, it's got, it's got everything you could possibly want. And, 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 and then some certainly, uh, may, maybe other places that you might go may not be quite as, um, resource available as, as it is here, certainly. But, uh, those are things that are, that are problems, uh, that can be a problem for expats, certainly. Um, so these are the kinds of things that I think are disadvantages to moving to the other side of, of the globe, right? When you want to, when you want to return to the classroom, certainly. Um, but for us, that's, that's definitely vastly, vastly outweighed by a variety of benefits, um, to both myself as a teacher and myself as an educator, and then my, my family as a whole, right? So, you know, like the kids get to go to SAS. So like, you know, uh, when Connor was in first grade last year, and so there was a couple of occasions where SAS is all one campus. So if I wanted, when my lunch break came up, you know, I could, I could go down to where he was eating lunch and I could sit down with him and I could eat lunch. And then I could go back and teach the rest of my day, or I could go down and get him 
and bring him up to me and we could get breakfast or we could get lunch or whatever we wanted to do and then send him back on his way back down there. Um, those kinds of things were not available to us in, in Long Island. And so uh, th- those kinds of things are, are tremendous benefits to us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, as you were saying, going in, there are schools that are going to be good fits. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit of a, it can be a little bit of a black box when you're going international. And this happened to be one where you were able to vet it a little bit. And then yes. there's been some pleasant surprises on the back end as well. Yeah. I would not um, recommend to anybody out there who's interested uh, just, just like going into it without <laughs> doing some real due diligence beforehand. And I mean, I don't think people really need me to say that. But you definitely want to make sure you have a good sense of the place that you're going before you decide that that's where you're going to go. Yeah, yeah. Or just have Paul Anderson do it for well, you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, yeah. So just call Paul <laughs> and uh, ask him. I mean, frankly, Paul's on Twitter. You can always get in touch with Paul. And if yeah. you do have a question about a particular international school, I'm sure that he's it's probably, probably been there. Paul thought there, you can you can totally bother him on Twitter. Uh, you know, and say that I, I say that I sent you. With my compliments <laughs> to to bother him on Twitter about a particular international school, and he'll he'll tell it like it is. Certainly, he's he's not shy. Yeah, I would like I would like the international school, but I would like it to be like between fifty and sixty all the time. So I just need yeah. to put him on that. Um, yeah, I, think I can't we imagine saying, mar- what we were saying the marathon summer, training there. What we were saying this summer <laughs> is like, man, we just we we were we were eager to get home to Singapore. We were like looking forward to it and so on. I was like, I just wish it was like a two hour plane ride instead of like a, a full day's worth of time yeah. in airports, right? So we, we flew through um, we flew through Europe this year. So that's okay. uh, six hours from Logan, right? And, <laughs> and, and, and listen, Mr. Matthew, we can talk about what a terrible airport Logan is because sure. it is not Kansas, great. Kansas City is worse. But yeah, but, <laughs> but I would argue that uh, worse than Logan is Heathrow. And so it's oh, yeah. Heathrow, right? Heathrow is, is got its own, its own set of issues. So that's what, yep. that's six hours. And then we had, uh, on the way back, we had a two hour layover. And so then it was Heathrow to Singapore, which is uh, 12 and a half, 13 hours, depending on the way that the wind is blowing. So um, that's that's a lot of time in a plane, man. You know, like that is a, that's a tremendous amount yeah. of time, like a bizarre amount of time in a plane. Uh, so, yeah. you know, we were like- I can't hey, imagine- yeah, we were like, I just, well, you, what do you do? You sleep, you read, yeah, you know, uh, British Air has wonderful back of the seat, you know, entertainment that you can watch. You get up, you do a lot of squats and calf raises. You put on your compression socks. You make sure that your family yeah. is as comfortable as possible. And, uh, you know, you just kind of, you just kind of sit there. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we, I was, we just kept saying in the summer, like, man, I just wish it was like two hours away instead of the day. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, now I'm going to, now I'm going to let you get on your soapbox for a minute. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the funniest things about you this summer yeah. is that, uh, while you've had your downtime, yeah. while you've been spending quality time with your family, you've been re-engaging in Twitter. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and you, you're right. You do have the blog and you do post things, you know, um, I think, I think for people who know you, there's like a sort of, a uh, there's a tone that I could totally read that there's a, a slight sort of Northeast tone that sure. you have, which I, yeah. I totally can relate to, um, yeah. that, but you definitely have, have like ramped up your outspoken opinions about the state of education, particularly, you know, talking about ed reform in the U S. Right. Um, so here's your soapbox. <laughs> um, 
what what's i guess what's the thing that's that been you know most needling to you that sort of has got you back in in engaging in conversations about you know education in the u.s is it from that administrative experience and you just like why aren't we learning or is it is there something else that we're doing collectively wrong yeah well well thank you for finally giving me an opportunity to talk about my opinions about things here on this (laughs) but uh no uh i uh, so okay we, we talk a little bit more about social media a little bit later on. Um, yeah. I used to be a person who was like very uh, fundamentalist in the idea that media, different advances in media, you know, people would kind of like, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, it's going to, you know, somebody think of the children, it's going to ruin everybody. I'd be like, yeah, okay. You know, Socrates used to think writing stuff down would ruin people's memory too and so on. Like, come on, Right. But various things have happened over the last couple of years with social media that uh, I think are deeply concerning. And mm-hmm. so uh, I, like in the spring, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go off. Like I'm going to go off of all social media. I had read a good book last year, uh, which was Jaron Lanier's uh, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. I read that like on the plane to Singapore the first year. Um, I did not immediately get off and delete my social media accounts um, because I thought, uh, you know, very self-centered. I, I was like, well, it would be really rude for me to move uh, around <laughs> the world and then turn yeah. off my Facebook so that my parents and friends couldn't know what I was doing. Right. And, you know, I, I, I lived in that delusion for about six months before I realized, like, I am not so important that people need to know what I'm doing all the time. And there are a variety of other things involved with social media now that are just not not great for me personally. Uh, health-wise, you know, sort of mental health-wise, and also just uh, various things that have occurred over the, you know, since, well, let's say since to pick a random date, since Election Day 2016, I think various mm-hmm. things have occurred that uh, would suggest that social media may not be particularly healthy in the way that it's set up right now. So I shut it down in the spring, and I would still uh, write blog pieces and put them out there. And I would, uh, I, I deactivated Facebook at that time. Uh, and I've actually since gone in and actually deleted my Facebook. Like uh, I'm done with Facebook, but uh, Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I would put out articles onto uh, Twitter and I would say, uh, I like, I, I would be like, I wonder if people are reading them. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. I, I would occasionally log into Twitter kind of like silently. Somebody would, would, would write something and be like, oh, nice piece. Or somebody would just, you know, retweet something or whatever. And maybe if I was like really feeling saucy, I would engage by like clicking the heart button. But I wasn't going to talk to anybody uh, publicly on Twitter. I would sometimes use the DMs to talk to people just to get in touch with people. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I don't know, man. Like it's kind of like I'm kind of like being a jerk. Like people are writing nice things about what I'm saying. They're trying to engage me in conversation and I'm not talking to them about it. And it was the summer. So I was just a little bit like I was on some train rides. I was on some plane rides. I was just like a little bored. And I was like, all right, like I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit more on Twitter. And it was like, it was like opening up a fire hose. It was like a (laughs) clear demonstration that for me, at least like there are clear uh, patterns of, of like addictive behavior in the way that Twitter operates. You know, you, you, you find yourself just, and again, I'm just speaking for myself. I'm not talking for anybody else out there. If, If you're a big Twitter user, I'm not saying you have the same kind of problems I have. But again, it was just like opening up, like I was just like checking it and like seeing who's responding and I got to talk to them and, oh yeah, I got to say this thing. And, oh, these people are talking about this and these people are talking about that. And it, it, it also was sort of dovetailed with the fact 
that um, for a long time in Twitter, one of the problems I had with educational Twitter was that the conversation seemed very vapid and there was a lot of like, just like emptiness that was going on and sort of platitudes and whatnot. And I, I, I would say these things and it seems like uh, other people now, there seems to be a, a really vociferous group of people who are having that same conversation. And so the people who are maybe putting out those platitudes and saying those things are not getting away with it anymore as much as they mm -hmm. used to. And people are just like really kind of uh, having good constructive conversations about the, the, the ways that these the sort of professional uh, edutainment class on Twitter presents itself. And so that was really yeah. interesting to me. And so I, I really got involved in those conversations uh, as well. Right. But you're right that I think the thing that really drove me finally to re-engage with Twitter is that I, I, I'm, I'm sort of like thinking about what's happening in U.S. education and uh, why it, it, it does seem to have issues like the ones that I experienced as an administrator. Um, like the ones that I, I may have seen as a teacher, but didn't really experience because a little bit, a little bit more protected and a little bit more freer to kind of ignore that stuff. And mm -hmm. so, and, and then having spent a year at SAS, which is just wildly different. Um, obviously let's be very clear, wildly different in terms of the resources that are available, you know? Uh, but you know, what's interesting is that SAS is ethnically more diverse than Deer Park was. Um, yeah. socioeconomically, it's considerably less diverse, right? Uh, you know, everybody is just much more, uh, privileged. I mean, that's just the simple state statement of fact, right? The students are just much more privileged, privileged than, uh, everybody in Deer Park would be. And so it's like, you know, what is different about how SAS works? How much of that is a function of the privilege? How much of that is a function of the resources, but then how much of that is a function of the culture of the place and how much of that culture can be trans like a thought experiment, right? If you could take the culture of SAS and transplant it into American schools, how much of that would stick and how much mm. it wouldn't, what would prevent that from sticking? You know, what would be the, the difficulties there? And fundamentally, and, and, and this is, uh, I'm going to preface this as, as saying that this is absolutely a, an oversimplification, but I, I, I do think that the main sort of driving dynamic in American education that has led to the, the issues that we see in, in American public education is that uh, the teachers are just increasingly deprofessionalized. And I mean that in terms of they're, they're certainly not trusted. Um, I, I think that they're absolutely, they're not given the kinds of resources that they need in a lot of places. I mean, I, I have some understanding of where you work, you know where I worked. I think that we yeah. occupy an increasingly, or, or I, we, I mean, I'm not there anymore, right? But that public educators in the kinds of systems like you have, like you work in and that I work in occupy an increasingly diminishing slice of American public, uh, public education in, in terms of how well they're paid, what their benefits are, mm -hmm. what their pension looks like, uh, you know, what their resource, like what their security is, right? And so that's, that's a big thing, right? Because I don't know how you could possibly expect a group of educators in uh, in in a circumstance that's that's where they can't make ends meet without working multiple jobs to do their best work teaching kids, right? So I think that's part of the deprofessionalization. But I think that another part of it, and and maybe as much as an equal part of it, is that the systems just seem to be degraded, right? And so you know, one thing that I think really got me early on in the summer when I was back on Twitter is uh, you know Lee Lee Ferguson, wonderful teacher. Mm -hmm. I've known her for years. You, you know her very well. She's fantastic. 
And uh, she had tweeted out that Target was having uh, its annual teacher discount back to school sale, right? And I I think that's great. Like, I don't want to uh, besmirch the Target Corporation. Like, I'm really glad that they are trying to do something to make it easier for teachers in America to buy the kinds of supplies that they need in order to teach effectively, right? That's not my complaint. My complaint is that America is a place where many, many, many teachers need to go to places like Target uh, and buy supplies in order to teach. Like, that's a crazy thing if you think about it. Like, the idea that that we as Americans have allowed our public education systems to get to a point where, you know, not only are the teachers not being paid what they need, but they also are now like laying out of pocket to get the kinds of supplies they need in order to make the systems in their classroom function effectively. Like that's an insane, an insane place to be. I think if you are a country that, that values public education. And so I think, you know, you're, you, you either need to, you need to say, that we don't value public education and, and just make peace with that and be like, you know what, here in America, we're, we're not going to value public education as much as other countries in the world value public education. And that's just what it's going to be. Or you need to say, this is not right. And this is a thing that if we really want to be able to fix the kinds of problems that we see in public education, we need to address this. And we, you know, we, we need to address it by just obviously spending more money in education. Like there's no way around that. How you spend that money comes from different places. I'm not advocating for it all to come from the increase in people's taxes, Uh, you know, but I would guess that you would probably have to increase the amount of taxes that are allocated to education, but also just the way that Mm. the government prioritizes these things. Um, You know, I, I don't see that conversation happening, right? When I see conversations about education reform, it's always about other things. It's about, you know, charter schools in order to free up the arduous obligations of teachers working under union contracts. Or it's, you know, the kids need to be... Uh, uh, sorry, I've, I've worked myself up into a bit of a lather here. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's right. always at the margins, you know, something's wrong with the kids these days, whatever it is, we need to arm the teachers, all of these things, none of it really seems to get at the root as much as the argument that education in America has just been deprofessionalized to the point that the systems cannot function optimally anymore. Like they just can't because they've just been so degraded. And so if you want to restore the function to American education. And if you want to get at all those other things that education reformers talk about, if you want more flexibility in the kinds of educational settings that we give our students and the kinds of professionalism that we expect from our teaching core and all of those things, you need to restore the, uh, the, just the, the elevation of the profession to something like what we would expect from any other professional career, right? We need to treat teachers similar to any other you know, uh, comparable group of professionals. And I just don't see that argument being made anywhere. And so that's just the thing that I think really kind of finally got me to be like, oh yeah, no, I work in a system now where I am treated as a professional, right? I am given 
everything I need in order to do the best work that I can for my kids. The school operates in a place that's like, hey, we just want you to do your best work. So, you know, if you need this, just ask for it. We'll get it for you. You know, if we can do it, we absolutely will do it. And as a result, I think the, the, uh, I think the results in the culture speak for themselves. You know, the, the, the place is just, a, is just doing its best work for kids um, as much as possible. And I, I just don't see that in, in, in American public education in a lot of places. You know, I'm sure there are people who listen to this and say, not my place, my place is still good. And I, I think that's great. Like, I think you should cherish that and you should do everything in your power to make sure that it stays that way. When I think about my own trajectory as a public school educator uh, in suburban Long Island, you know, I had, I was able to make a living and I had support. I didn't have to go out and get a second job in order to feed my family. I had a good pension. I had a strong union. I had all these things. And still, if I think about those 12 years, you know, when I first, when I first started teaching, I could administer my own regents exams. I could grade my own regents exams, right? My, my administrators would come in and they would observe me. And then we would talk about it afterwards and it wouldn't be tied to any sort of ongoing considerations about whether or not I was going to continue to be employed by that district, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those things all started to go away. You know, and all of that speaks to an erosion of the assumption that teachers are going to do their best work for kids. And so I think if we start from the place of assuming that teachers are going to do their best work for kids and we just make it possible for them to do it, every teacher I know, with very, very few exceptions, are going to, you know, rise to that occasion and do their best work for kids. So yeah, it's it's. <laughs> Yeah, it's it was a great. I I, I tell you what, it was a great rant. I was I was like wanting to step in at several points, but it was like, nope, I'm just gonna let yeah. <laughs> let him finish the rant. Out, I mean, rant out I there. Know, like I, like what do you, like just to put you just because this is just something that I'm just I'm workshopping these ideas and just thinking about this a lot. Yeah. Like, what do you think, Aaron? As as a as a public school educator, you know, uh, where am I? What am I missing? You know, I guess of like, like tear my yeah. argument apart, please. So I I think the 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 biggest thing that I would say that sort of sort of aside I don't want to say you're missing but it's it's a component of the the conversation that we're we're not having right here is the fact is that you can have two towns right yeah. next to each other yeah. and in one town they are treating their teachers with as yeah. professionals they're paying them so they don't need to have a second job they're they're doing this and their taxes are higher in that right. one town and you go one town over and we are not serving the children of that community one town over as well because they've decided they don't want to raise their local property taxes up. Yeah. And so literally it can be the difference of, you know, just bordering towns right. that you see a discrepancy. And in some states like in New Jersey, that's I think they say New Jersey is like one of the most segregated, um, you know, school systems in in the country because you literally will have towns right next to each other where you'll have some of the best schools um, performance sure. wise and resource wise next to some of the worst ones right next door. In Massachusetts, it's more like clustered, like you have a cluster of, you know, where I teach, I teach out in the western suburbs outside of Boston. We have it pretty good. Could we have it better? Sure. Realistically, compared to what other people have, we have 
abundant right. resources. We are treated as professionals. Um, I say that also as a 40 something year old white man who's been doing yeah. it for 24 yeah. years. So, so like I, they don't go after the, the front of the, the pack. They, they go after the, the young cubs when they come in and it's a really hard place to be a young teacher yeah. because you have to be vetted. Like the, the community vet, vets you as a professional, they like kind of churn you up a little bit. Um, yeah. And you got to get through that. Yeah. So if you can get through that in the right kind of towns, but I, do I think that we're doing a good job across the board treating teachers as professionals? The answer is no. And I think that it's the exception rather than yeah. rule. And you like, you kind of have to make some decisions as a teacher. Are you, do you want to serve kids who have the greatest needs or do you want to serve, be in a place where you're a professional? And I do actually think that as an educator, you kind of have to make that yeah. choice. And it's tough to do both of those things. And I think that that really hurts a lot of teachers because teachers have a hard time <laughs> choosing between, you know, if I worked in bio, you know, in pharmaceuticals, right. you know, I, I would make as much money as I could possibly make and nobody would fault yeah. me for it. But if you do that in education, somehow you're not doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, and that's that's weird um, because ultimately what we're doing is a socialist venture here. We are trying to provide an equal quality education to all Correct. kids, but we don't pay for it like it's a social, yeah. you know, a socialist uh, encounter that we're working. No, with. I think I think you're right on there, and I mean, and, and thank you for uh, for making the point. You know, there is a tremendous amount of uh, of privilege, I think, for teachers like yourself or the teachers that I used to work with in Deer Park, just in terms of still being in a in a functional system. Um, I, 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 the money thing is 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 something that I try to I try to wrap my head around all the time, and you know I think I I did like a back of the envelope calculation, and um, it was like, all right, what uh, this is not. This is just like a ludicrous calculation just to kind of figure it out in order to kind of in order to 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 see what it is. I do not think that this is a solution, what I'm about to say. All right. Like I would not be advocating for this. I just wanted to see what the numbers look like, right? There's three and a half million teachers in the American public system, plus or minus a couple, right? Let's say that next year the government decided that it wanted to give those teachers a uh, fifty thousand dollar raise. You know, right? I'm going to give every teacher in the in the country a fifty thousand dollar raise. Now, again, this is not a good idea, but I just want to know what those numbers look like, right? The number that comes out is, you know, uh, hundreds of uh, of of billions of dollars, and you're like, oh, that's that's a that's a that's a wild number, yeah. But it's less than the 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 annual operating budget of of the Pentagon by by quite a bit, you know. And so, like the Pentagon spends more money famously. I don't know if this is still true. You know, somebody look me up and call me on it if, if I'm wrong here, right? But the sort of the famous stat was like that the, the United States spent more money on its military than the next seven largest militaries combined, right? And it's like, okay, well, if you wanted to pay every teacher in the country $50,000 more a year, right? Maybe you'd just spend more on your military than the next largest three countries in in the world combined. You know what I'm saying? Like the way in which we allocate the money that's already there is just not reflective of a country that wants to elevate public education to a to a high level. You know, I just it, it's just not something that we do. And I don't see anybody really making making those arguments. And I, politically, yeah, I can understand why it's a loser to go up there and advocate for slashing defense spending. Like you're not going to be elected to whatever office it is. 
But if you want to actually have difficult conversations and, and hard conversations, you need to be adult enough to at least recognize that these are going to be difficult conversations. There's not going to be easy solutions to these problems. And it's going to involve, you know, sorts of changes in the ways in which business is being done, because the way in which business is being done is obviously not working for the majority of kids out there, I think, who are in the public system. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, in honor of not raising your blood pressure to a dangerous <laughs> level, I think I'm going to shift, I'm going to shift gears, but I think, uh, yeah, we could have an ongoing podcast just on this yeah. topic alone. Just me screaming um, into We would not solve anything. <laughs> we wouldn't solve yeah. anything. And I think our wives would be like so yeah, mad at I, us. I would so agree with you. <laughs> we'll just... <laughs> uh, all right. So let's let's get us towards the exit. Uh, let's whip through these last couple of questions before we get to the picks. Uh, what are you looking forward to the most in in this upcoming classroom year? We're gonna this episode is gonna come out September first, so you will have been in your room for a couple of weeks. I will be. I will have seen most of my students for the first I time when this comes out. What are you looking forward yeah, to? Yeah. So uh, obviously, I've got some new roles. So I, I, I'm looking. I'm yep. looking forward to those. Uh, I've sort of avoided rigorous NGSS alignment work, like it not, not, not deliberately. It's just my, my, my roles have been such over the last number of years that I've avoided like the big push in New York state to make those changes. I was, I was involved in sort of the, the initial like idea work, but what that really looks like at the classroom level, like I haven't really had the opportunity to really play around with and now have been, you know, released from an entire block of teaching just really to focus on that with my chemistry colleagues who are uh, amazingly talented folks. And so I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what that's going to look like, what we come up with, uh, how that's all going to work. Uh, I'm looking forward to sort of the, the, the things that are going to fail. Like, uh, you know, uh, like what, what, what isn't going to work, what's going to blow up in my face, like all that sort of stuff is the fun of, of being in that kind of a role and, 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 and charging forward, so to speak. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that, uh, in AP biology, um, we are moving to a standards-based system that is similar to, uh, my, my prior standards-based system. And so we workshopped that at the end of last year, just in times in terms of thinking what it's going to look like. Um, I borrowed some uh, some things from Paul Strode and what Paul does. Uh, you know, Paul's always great <laughs> about giving people stuff. You know, I thought about the old standards based system that we used in AP Bio, uh, what four or five, probably even more than that now, years ago, and like where it worked and where it didn't work, and how we could avoid some of the things that failed in, in those approaches. And so I'm really looking forward to implementing that in AP and um, figuring out how that's going to work. So those are the two things that I'm looking forward to uh, in, in terms of big, big picture stuff this year. We have uh, incoming biology teachers and we have one incoming chemistry teacher. So the PLC teams for chemistry are both different that I'll be working with. And so that's good to get some new blood in there and just um, just get a, a new mix of perspectives and see what kinds of tools, uh, you know, new people who've come to play with us are going to bring bring to the party. And so I'm looking forward to, to that aspect of it as well. And just continuing to work, uh, obviously, with with my colleagues and with my students, uh, who who I enjoy very very much. And so those are the those are the things I think that uh, that I'm really looking forward to this year in the classroom, certainly. All right, and um, I think we touched a little bit about it, but you do not teach twenty four seven. And so, what are you looking? We, what do you do in Singapore when you're not oh, teaching? There's there's uh, you know there's there's never anything uh, a shortage of things to do in Singapore. Um, we're still give us like the top two yeah, or three. We're, yeah, <laughs> we're still very new to the island, so there's a lot of the island that we still really haven't experienced. Particularly since my daughter 
is now 20 months old. And so, um, yeah. you know, uh, as I'm sure you might remember, having a child of that age, and then of course, you know, she was eight months old when she got here, it kind of limits what you can do. <laughs> so uh, as she gets older, we're a little bit more freed up to take more advantage of the, the various things that the, the city has on offer. Um, and so we'll be continuing to dive into that. We're thinking about where we might travel this year in the surrounding environment. Uh, Singapore is pretty centrally located in Southeast Asia. And so last year we went to Thailand for one break and we went to Bali for one break, which are kind of like the, the stereotypical two first vacations that people take. So we're thinking about where we might go this year and, and do for that. Um, and then just really, I'm trying to be more more and more focused on being present in the, uh, in the, the, the life of my children. Um, I feel like that's really, really important. You, you only get this yeah. opportunity uh, at this stage in your life. You know, 20 years from now, I'm not going to have another tiny young person, um, you know, that I'm living with all the time. And so uh, I'm really just trying to, to be there and be in that process as much as possible. Uh, those are my main, my main interests. That's those are perfect. <laughs> As I this past this past week, I uh, I took my my uh, oldest, who is yeah. sixteen, and learning to mm -hmm. drive, uh, and I had him actually drive me back to my ah. hometown because um, because nice. uh, we were getting a we were getting a present for his grandmother for my mother for her birthday, and so I had him drive on back roads and back highways, and it's the first time he merged onto wow. a highway and that sort That's of very stuff. Cool. So you will not be. A, you will not have a shortage yeah. of weird experiences yeah. throughout the time, but you're right. Each one of them is very unique and different that you get to experience sort of their life through yeah. these milestones that they go through in these different You can only places, experience, so. you know, time only moves in one direction, right? So like you can only experience yeah. uh, your, your children's lives <laughs> once. So try to take advantage <laughs> yeah. of it, definitely. All right. So before we get to picks of the episode, have you come up with any questions? Yeah, for you me? know, I, I, you just kind of hit on it. So I don't. I was going to ask you because I'm in this headspace of thinking about my kids and and my uh, my my fatherhood, for want of a better term, mm -hmm. um, and trying to be kind of critically reflective on on that for me. Uh, you know, as as somebody who's a little bit further along in that <clears throat> journey, I was just I was just going to ask you for for good tips, but I think you you kind of you kind of hit you kind of hit it, but if you want to talk a little bit more about it, I'd love to hear it. All right, so I will give like the so you have a little different experience than I do, but um, but but you can integrate this however or ignore it however you want. Yeah, uh, but no, I got I'm the I got the experience of being home with my kids during the summer, uh, which oh, yeah. I don't think a lot of dads get. Yeah. And so there's four years difference between my boys. And so, um, you know, when my, my youngest was, you know, just out of the luggage stage, which, you know, 20 months is sort of the end of the luggage sure. stage next summer <laughs> won't be luggage. We'll be wanting to engage and do that sort of thing. And then the right. other one was four years older. Um, I actually would create a fishbowl, um, a okay. little physical fishbowl, and I would cut up pieces of paper and put like a daily activities. And I made sure yeah. that every week we would have a day where we would pull the day before we would pull an activity out and we would yeah. go do that activity. And I made sure to mix in 
enough things that had trips that would be a little bit yeah. further away. So like Boston's Children's Museum, there was one of those in there and the Providence Children's Museum was one. And, yeah. you know, going to the zoo was in there. And then like bowling was in there like three times. Because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to my kids, going to the Boston Children's Museum and going two towns over to bowling was equally exciting as a day right. trip to do. Yeah. Um, they didn't care, but I built a little pageantry to the trips um, and then once a week we did that. So I like kind of booked myself that Thursdays was going to be our day I one summer that. that we would go and just do something. Um, nah. and so we would take, you know, eight to 10 trips during the summer. Um, and so when they were in their, their younger ages, we would go do that. And then I would do something else like, uh, the, you know, fruit season around here, we get lots of fresh fruit. So like we would go and pick blueberries, um, at a, like yeah. a local blueberry farm down the road. And so when it was blueberry season, we would, I'd take them out there and I've got pictures of my, you know, now 12 year old with a bucket on his head and face covered That's in cool. blue and stuff like that. So I would try to build in like a day where we'd go to like farmers markets and farm stands and then a day that would be sort of an adventure day um and it wasn't a big lift but it was definitely that sure. building experiences kind of thing um that i don't know i think it's hard to feel like like oh i'm i'm i've got to build memories or build experiences so i just built right. them in a way that i thought would be fun for them um and no, again, that's great idea. it was only about a three-year window four-year window where that really worked great Could work yeah yeah but that that worked really great for that three or four years where that, um, they were in that window. Man, this is this uh, fantastic. What a! I feel like my price of admission has all been paid just with that <laughs> tip, my friend. Thank you so much. That's that's uh, that's just that's just wonderful. Uh, what a great what a great idea. Right. I don't know. The thing I think about with parenthood all the time is just like, I, I, like I feel this way about myself as a teacher too. Like I always feel like a bit of imposter syndrome. Oh yeah. Uh with my parenting. Like I feel like uh like I'm just not great at it. But you know, and then and then like I feel like everybody's like, oh you're you're doing awesome. And it's good to hear, you know, my parents are like, oh you're doing great and all this stuff. And I'm still just like, man, I you know, it's just such a parenthood's a weird thing in that sense, in that it's just like, you know, you only get one shot at it with each kid, so to speak, right? And so you just really want to make sure you're doing your best all the time. Well, the most I'm probably yeah. The most yeah. important thing you've already done is yeah. you have a you have a partner who yeah, no, totally. you work through everything <laughs> and uh, like, and yeah i mean uh, folks folks who are listening to this episode can hear you know what 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 i've done with uh in life over the last year like if that doesn't tell you how amazing uh my life partner is like i don't know what would yeah so you're absolutely right yeah oh it's it's i have a colleague who is like that me and my wife never fight like, she's like, I don't know why you never fight. You never get into an argument. Like, because she would see things like we'd have something and my wife would point something out to me and I'd be like, yeah. oh, yeah, you're right. I was totally wrong about that. Yeah. And she's like, yeah. no, you're supposed to tell like tell her that she's wrong about that. And I was like, but she's right. Like, if she <laughs> if she points something out that I did yeah. or like, I will like, no, I don't think you're right. I think you're the wrong thing. And she's like, oh, yeah, you're right. So like we we can disagree about things, sure. but we also are like humble um, and yeah. like we have a relationship in there and I, I do literally have a colleague who like for years and I've known her, you know, this, this colleague for years would like say, you guys are weird because you never fight. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. it's not that we never have disagreements, but right. like if my wife is pointing out that I've done something wrong, like she is the most valued person in my life. If she's telling me yeah. I did something wrong, I'm pausing and going, I probably did something wrong. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah. I, I yeah, a similar kinds of experiences over here. I mean, yeah. I, I always had friends who uh, their their relationships maybe weren't uh, as long term or whatever, and so they'd be like, you know, what's your secret for 
staying in a, in a committed relationship like you are. And I was like, I, I don't really have a secret. I just like, I just married the the person who, you know, it was the easiest relationship I ever was in, you know? And so it just made, it made life just so, so easy. Like every step of it, just one, one step just followed naturally from the next. Like, you know, there was never any sort of forcing anything. We're just like, all right, now we're going to do this. All right, now we're going to do that. And uh, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Like we will disagree with each other, but fights are rare. That's for sure. And so I think, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really important to have a, a really quality uh, partner in your life if you can get one. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very fortunate in that in that, that way. I, I always yeah, say married up, sure. married up, haven't regretted it. Um, <laughs> so that's how that's yeah. usually my line. So, so we started we the, to sound like yeah, we, the two, the two most privileged people in the world. Yeah. Having this conversation. Yeah. Well, we started, the, <laughs> we started the conversation talking about Bob Kuhn and we ended talking about our wives. So I think we've gone in the right direction here. Um, yeah, I think so. I think you're right. <laughs> All right. So let's get to picks of the episode. Uh, yes, David, you got a couple of things that were turning around your head. What are you thinking about? I got two. Um, I'll give folks uh, something to consume first, a little bit of media. So I, I kind of talked about this before and I was talking about social media, um, that I think that a variety of things have developed over the last couple of years that are incredibly concerning as relates to monetized social media platforms. So these would be things uh, like Facebook and Twitter um, or, you know, Facebook in disguise, like Instagram, right, which is which is owned by Facebook. And um, I, I think about ways to, to make this point to people. And um, the, the book that I mentioned before is great, but also I think there's a movie on uh, Netflix right now, a documentary called uh, The Great Hack, mm-hmm. which is on Netflix, which is about uh, Cambridge Analytica and how Cambridge Analytica worked and how Facebook allowed Cambridge Analytica to work and the effects that that has had not only in the American political process, but in uh, really worldwide mm-hmm. in various political uh, processes uh, all over the world. I think it's uh, incredibly concerning both in that particular instance um, and how that instance has kind of just been almost sort of like, oh, oh, well, we're just going to continue to do things the way we've been doing it. But also more broadly in showing the way that monetized social media really works and where the money comes from um, and, and how, how it can really be in, you know, insidious in terms of how it can affect people's perspectives on the world and uh, take their attention and all of those things. And so I, 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 I highly recommend it. I don't think it's particularly partisan. Um, you know, uh, it's not making a, a point that I think is aligned with one political party or the other. Though um, I, I would guess folks, some folks would watch it and probably feel that it's very strongly partisan, mm-hmm. um, which probably says a lot about the kinds of media that those folks may be consuming, if I, if I may be so bold. So um, I, I would definitely recommend that in terms of something to consume. In terms of something to do, um, I actually, my dad is 81. He's going to be 82 in October. And I, I, I knew a lot about his early life. I knew it was tough, but I didn't really have like a clear, a clear uh, sequence of events. And, you know, my dad was kind of in and out of foster care and, and so on. And I really wanted to get it all. Um, and so when we were uh, home, uh, we were visiting, I decided I wanted to get an oral history of my father. And so um, there's various ways to do that. Uh, but the thing that I settled on was a program called otter.ai. Mm-hmm. And so what you do with otter.ai is it's on your iPad or your iPhone. And you sit down and you hit record and it records what the person is saying. And it does its best to generate a transcript of what they're saying in real time as you're doing it. It's not a perfect transcript by any stretch, 
but it's a good first pass transcript. And then when you're when you're done with it, you get the audio, which you can pull off as an MP3, but you also get the audio synced up with the transcript. So you can then go back through and fix the errors in the transcription as necessary, um, kind of as you're listening to it. And then, of course, you can export the, the text of the transcript as well. And so that was a very easy way to do what I wanted to do. And um, the free plan is, uh, I think you get uh, 10 hours per month of transcription. Wow. So that's more than enough of what I needed. So it, it was not anything that cost any money. And so I would, I would pass that on to folks. I, I thought that that was a, a useful way of, of accomplishing uh, the purpose that I needed it to accomplish. So check out otter.ai, I guess. That's neat. I think if I had enough people who listened to my episodes that they cared for such a thing, that would be useful. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody's clear. You, you've never texted me to tell me that I need to do transcripts of my episodes. So um, <laughs> I think yeah. about 80% of my feedback has come from you. So uh, I do. I worry about it. I, you know, we, when we had the podcast, I felt the same way. I feel the same way with my YouTube videos. I think it's like, like, I don't want to give that too short a shrift. Like, I think transcripts are important for people who can't hear. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I think that that is, or people who can't see for that matter, uh, because, uh, you know, it, I think that that is uh, important if you can do it. And so um, it, I would guess if you, if you, if that was something you were interested in doing, obviously you don't have the, the, the bandwidth necessary to take on a project like that. But what I might do is I might take a, an MP3 of a show and throw it into something like otter.ai. And just see what comes out, yeah. because if it's like kind of like good enough, then maybe you could just, you know, it doesn't take you too long to do that. But I, my guess would be it's not good enough and it's probably too much of a time sink for a, uh, you know, for the for the the uh, the large corporation that is uh, life of the school. <laughs> well, maybe worth it uh, to, as an yeah. experiment to do at some point, uh, maybe later this summer. I'll try it out and see if it starts appearing yeah. in my uh, my Patreons. People will start going, hey, this is this is why he's doing that. Yeah, man. So. It pops out. What do you have as your pick of the week, sir? Yeah, so my pick, I went a whole different direction. Um, I have been yeah. uh, I have been storylining my AP biology, uh, which means that I've been nice. coming with like big thematic stories for every month. Um, and yeah. the first story that we have come up with is why are plants green, and what does that okay. what does this tell us about the evolution of life on Earth? Um, Very cool. And coincidentally this month uh in science mag uh in the journal science uh they had two articles um about specifically looking at um that one is a perspective i apparently have to fix the link on this um and one is the actual research article about how the photosystems of diatoms work um and so i love showing primary source literature to my students yeah um this will be very early in the process something that they won't quite be ready for um, but I think it's okay. a good thing to show them um, yeah. in context. And I might do something where I do it like as a as a jigsaw or um, I give them the perspective article, which is actually written at a level that they could use. And then yeah. give them the journal article itself, maybe in a, in a little clips and stuff like that and say, can you find the parts in the perspective that are highlighted in this journal article or that sort of thing. Um, awesome. Maybe it's just like a, like a warm up one day as we're starting to, to get deep into it. Because I think um, anytime students can start to sort of see the, the depth and breadth of science communication um, from something that the science perspective article is certainly higher level than you would see in a New York times or, sure. or, or comment piece, uh, but is usually something that most of my AP biology students can read and then show them this is the level when the scientists are communicating to one another, they're using right. research article methodology. 
you know, what, how is, are these translatable? How did, how do you get to this translation? What kind of questions you get? And some of my kids will be able to do it right off the bat. And I think that will be exciting for them. And for students who don't, um, we do a lot of deconstructing journal articles and it kind of blows their doors off the first time we do it. So why not do it in a low stakes way first? <laughs> so yeah, that yeah. when they're doing it for real, that will be a little bit easier. So, uh, that's awesome. What a great idea. So, all right. Well, uh, thank you for joining me. This has been, um, we certainly ellipsed our, uh, our previous recording by quite a bit. Um, <laughs> soapbox, I think is the, is the key, but let me do my yeah, credits. I, mean, I, can bloviate, I can bloviate with the best of America. Yeah. You know? I can put words together. No yeah. big deal. <laughs> all right. Let me give my I credits. Like I know what I'm talking about when I actually have no idea what I'm talking about. That's a, a real skill that I found has helped me as an educator yeah, I think uh, immensely. Kartok uh, had the idea that if, you know, two people don't know what they're talking about, do they come up with more grandiose ideas um, than yeah. if it's just one person who doesn't know what they're talking about. So <laughs> I might have contributed to that. Um. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. So uh, let me get to credits. Uh, so please subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, you can also support this episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Somebody made me do that and then stopped having their Patreon page. <laughs> I won't mention who, but I do release my episodes early uh, to my yeah. Patreons via audio a couple sure days in advance. Um, and you can also get my show notes there uh, when I do release them. I also post show notes on lifeofschool.org. Music on this every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow David at David Kanufke. And so there thank you, you all for joining me, and I will talk to everybody soon. Thanks again, Aaron. I really appreciate it. <laughs>